Hello, and welcome to Saints, Sinners, and Salvageables, a look inside America's electoral system. I'm your host, Ben Ginsburg, and each week through the end of the 2022 election season, we'll examine the issues surrounding casting, counting, and certification of this year's voting. This week, we want to delve into how elections are actually run and the challenges those running our elections are facing in this very contentious election year. To help us understand the situation, we have two great experts in this. Claire Whittall-Vogue is the Executive Director of the Milwaukee Election Commission, where she's responsible for all aspects of putting on elections in the city of Milwaukee, truly one of the hot zones in American elections today. Matt Crane is the Executive Director of the Colorado County Clerks Association and an election administration consultant. He's worked in election administration in Colorado uh, for 21 years at both the state and county levels, including serving as the elected clerk and recorder for Arapahoe County, a fast-growing suburb outside of the Denver area. I'm grateful to Matt and Claire for coming on uh, to talk about these issues and their very real-world perspectives on where we are today. Election administrators uh, like Claire and Matt are facing an organized and aggressive election denial movement uh, that insists our elections are rigged and the results are fraudulent. In the lives of administrators, that means that they have to look at issues uh, ranging from physical uh, harassment of themselves to massive record requests to uh, challenges from people actually trying to break into the voting systems to get that information. Uh, it is not the job the way the job used to be, and Claire and Matt will help us describe uh, those prevails that they must face. Matt and Claire are also from two states with very different ways of conducting elections. Colorado votes almost exclusively by mail, and Wisconsin has a tradition of in-person voting. That helps point up one of the features of our American electoral system, that we have over 10,000 jurisdictions responsible for the casting, counting, and certification of votes. There are different ways to do it amongst those jurisdictions and the states, but despite the differences, there are protections and safeguards built into all of the voting systems to prevent irregularities and fraud. So Matt and Claire, welcome. We really appreciate your being here. Um, if you could, let's begin with a brief description of how election administrators go about preparing for an upcoming election. In other words, what are you doing now to get ready? Claire, why don't you start? Sure, thank you, Ben. Um, so right now we have all of our absentee ballots and our official ballots were delivered last week. We have gone ahead and mailed out all of our absentee by mail ballots that were we had received requests for, and we are in the midst of preparing to test um, all of our voting machines. It's called accuracy and logic and accuracy testing. Um, and in addition to that, um, we start our election worker training tomorrow. For the next six weeks, we will have election worker training almost daily in the city of Milwaukee to make sure that about 2,500 election inspectors have been trained and we've answered all their questions leading up to election day. And that's in addition to processing voter registrations, absentee applications, and then 
here in Wisconsin in um, one month's time, we will have 12 days of early um, in-person absentee voting as well. And how big is your staff to help you um, do that? I, um, including myself, we have nine full-time staff in the city of Milwaukee. We are a city of about 600,000 um, people and have just under 300,000 registered voters. And how many volunteers will be part of the process? So we will end up um, in the weeks leading up to the election, we will bulk up to a staff of about 150. Um, that includes volunteers and then our hourly workers. And then on election day, we will have about um, 2,500 election workers volunteering out there at the polling places and counting absentee ballots on election day. Great. And Matt, uh, describe for us a little bit what's going on in the state of Colorado, what you're telling uh, the clerks, a little bit on the differences of what you have to go through in a, in a mostly male state. Sure. Well, Ben, thanks. Thanks for having us on today. Excited to be here for this conversation. This question I actually love because as an election administrator, after being in this for over 20 years, when I meet people for the first time and they ask what you do, and I say I'm in elections administration, they say, oh, that's great. What do you do the other 364 days out of the year, right? So there's this great misconception about elections and about what this incredibly competent and professional cadre of election officials across the country do. It's it's a it's a year-long plan. As soon as the last election's over, we start focusing on this one. Um, very similar to what Claire was saying in Colorado, um, this past Saturday, we just uh, there's the, the nationwide um, deadline to get ballots out to our military and overseas voters. So the last two weeks, we've gone through ballot certification, which is when the contests are certified by both the state, county and municipal uh, uh, jurisdictions that are participating in the election. So all of that gets the ballots get laid out over the last two weeks. We just got them out to our UOCAVA voters on Saturday. And now very much like Claire, we're turning our attention towards election judge training because as you said, Ben, Colorado is mostly, um, most voters who participate do cast their mail ballot, but we still have quite a robust in-person voting uh, option for people who choose to do that. So we are focused now on recruiting and hiring and training poll workers. Um, and then there's a, you know, everybody's dotting I's and crossing T's, making sure that ballot boxes, our 24-hour boxes are ready to go, um, that they have ballot security teams hired and ready to go to be able to get ballots to and from those ballot boxes. Um, and then just making sure that when it's time to come in and tabulate process and tabulate ballots, that we have people trained and ready to go with that. And, and tell me this, many of the impressions that people have of the American voting system is based on 2020, when it really came to the fore in a unique way. But that was a presidential year. What are the differences uh, that you go through between a presidential year and a non-presidential year like this one, if there are any? Matt? I would say um, it's... It it's very much the same preparation between, you know, a presidential versus a, a midterm like we're in now or even smaller elections. The procedures are still the same. I, I think we're just talking economies of scale. So in a presidential election, we'll expect a lot more people participating. And so we have to make sure that we are 
um, ginning up our operation accordingly. So hiring more poll workers, more people to tabulate ballots because we're gonna expect a higher number of ballots and people voting. Um, in a midterm like this, we, we're expecting still to see a pretty high turnout just because of um, you know, current events and how engaged people are civically right now. So you know, this election and the presidential, the, the way to set it up and to plan for it is largely the same. Again, it just goes back to those economies of scale. And Claire, differences, similarities? No, I would agree. Um, you know, oftentimes in Wisconsin, our spring elections are nonpartisan, fall elections are, are our midterms and our generals. And the same amount of preparation and thoroughness, um, testing and accuracy goes into every election. Um, it really is just the, the volume of ballots or the volume of voters. Um, and we tend to expand and have more early voting sites. But um, here in Wisconsin, especially, it feels like there is just as much, um, if not some more interest in the election. And I think that right now is because we are somewhat you know, farther from the pandemic, whereas two years ago, everything was very much virtual online. We saw huge numbers of absentee voting. So it's a little bit more difficult to gauge, um, but I think that there's definitely that civic engagement that's higher than previous midterms, at least here in Wisconsin in the past decade. Very good. Um, I'd like to turn now, uh, if we could, to sort of one of the um, less agreeable parts of the jobs of elections officials, which is the harassment that uh, you all have, have undergone. And Claire, I know you felt this particularly um, personally because I've heard your moving accounts, but could you uh, go through for our audience what you as the, as the chief elections officer in Milwaukee faced in the lead up and then certainly the aftermath of 2020? Sure. So one thing I like to start out by saying and reminding people, so in the city of Milwaukee, our voter turnout in 2020 and 2016 were almost exactly the same within a few hundred votes. Um, Donald Trump actually got more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. But what we've seen in the aftermath of 2020, because President Trump lost the state of Wisconsin as a whole, um, is really targeting our larger um, cities where we have higher concentrations of Democratic voters, but also voters of color, um, bilingual speakers. And we have seen a narrative develop, um, which was very predictable, about having a ballot dump in the middle of the night um, right after um, the November election. In Wisconsin, we can't process absentee ballots until starting at 7 a.m. on election day. We can't open them. We can't number them. Nothing can begin until 7 a.m. Um, and 170,000 of our 245,000 votes were cast by absentee ballot in 2020. So we finished that process at about 3 a.m. the next day, which was actually remarkably fast, and then delivered the results to the county um, at 3.30 in the morning. So it looked as if we had a dump of results at 3.30 in the morning. Um, and what's often reported is that I dumped 140,000 ballots for um, Joe Biden in the middle of the night. Um, the ballots that were cast for President Trump get left out of that narrative. Um, but there was an article insinuating this um, actually in August of 2021. So nearly a year after the election um, on a national um, 
website that resulted in me starting to receive hundreds of threats via email, via phone. Um, I had a letter delivered to my home um, threatening me, saying that I had committed treason, that I deserved to be hung. Um, and we've really continued to see this narrative, um, whether it's from state legislatures or um, other elected officials across the state of Wisconsin, but continuing this idea that something insidious happened in large cities in Wisconsin, um, which don't reflect any of the, the data um, when we look at vote totals of where President Trump lost Wisconsin. Um, but they've continued to result in these online outlets covering it, people tweet about it, and then our office becomes the target of harassment throughout the workday or um, getting emails and phone calls that, that kind of, luckily I say, are, are threatening my life and not the lives of my workers and most of my election workers on election day feel safe. But it is an ongoing um, occurrence here in Milwaukee, unfortunately. And how do you deal with that on a personal level? Does it, is it sort of really shakes you up at first and then you kind of realize it's harder? How, how does it impact you personally? Personally, I think it's, it, it's a little scary. I mean, I have two small children. Um, I also have three big dogs. Um, but I think for me, it's more of a, it, it frustrates me and keeps me awake at night because when I look at the ongoing harassment and I look towards November of 2022, I just wonder, is there any end in sight? There's no outcome where for me as an election administrator, it seems like there's going to be an end to the harassments or to the threats um, to myself, but also to democracy. So it can be debilitating, um, but it can also be what kind of motivates me to get out of bed every day and go to work and make sure that I'm doing a good job. Well, and we all extremely admire those efforts. Matt, you've got a broad and vast jurisdiction where you're talking to the clerks, uh, really goes all across the political spectrum. Um, what, what sort of um, reactions are they getting to their work? So it's been it's been very much the same, um, unfortunately, to what Claire um, has experienced as well. It's it's really been kind of surreal, especially, you know, these are election officials. Uh, most most of them, by their nature, are not people who go out and seek the spotlight. They just want to go to work every day, run great elections. And usually if our name if our name is in the paper, something went wrong. And so, you know, when 2020 happened and, you know, we didn't you know, it, it's so weird because, you know, President Trump lost Colorado by a, by a wide margin. It wasn't close. Um, and yet we still had people that were running around saying that um, that he really won the state. And so when election administrators would stand up and defend the process, um, very much like Claire said, that they would, you know, they would get yelled at. There were death threats, um, both on me and a few of the clerks that have really gone around and tried to sing the gospel of what really happens in our elections. Um, and every time you go out and speak there, you know, people just people get nuts. Um, you know, I remember I remember a presentation I gave in January of 2021, where um, there was a group of Republicans in Arapahoe County here who invited me to come out and talk about what really happened in the election. And so I was going through and debunking a lot of what was out on the national stage. 
And somebody said, you know, are you saying that, um, you know, President Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and some of these other bad actors, are you saying they're lying? And I said, well, you're damn right they're lying. And we can prove it, right? It's very clear. It's very black and white. We can prove that they're lying. Within a week after that, there were blog posts going around about uh, my wife uh, used to work for Dominion Voting Systems about how we were controlling the whole election cabal here in Colorado and across the country. And then threats, you know, started after that. Um, then with the whole Tina Peter, Peters fiasco in Mesa County. Yeah, explain that a little bit for folks who don't know that. Sure. So um, in May, so Colorado has a process to update our voting systems, whether, um, and the reason we would need to do that um, is for legislative changes that have changed the requirements for what voting systems could do. If there's new, uh, if there's new security or updates, other general updates, um, that needs to be uh, implemented, uh, that needs to be downloaded into the system. Colorado has a process for that called the trusted build. And so what that is, the new, the new version of the software and firmware goes through um, testing by uh, one of the federally accredited voting system testing labs. Um, and then when Colorado gets that back, they create what's called a golden image, which is a clean image of that software and firmware. The state then goes around and, um, installs that in every county in Colorado on that golden image. That's called the trusted build process. So there started, so in May of 2021, Mesa County was scheduled to have their trusted build process um, uh, completed. Tina Peters uh, is the clerk in Mesa County. Um, you know, Tina, I would say um, kindly is a low information clerk. She was elected in 18. She had no prior experience in elections, which is fine. We see that a lot. But she also showed no willingness to learn the job or no intellectual curiosity to learn and understand the systems. And so, um, you know, I think that she was um, probably targeted by these bad actors who got into her head about, you know, there, there are nefarious things happening inside your voting system. And so at that point in time, she decided she hatched a plan with other people to where um, allegedly, and she's admitted most of this now, um, where she stole somebody's identity, um, snuck somebody in to copy an image of her voting system, both before and after the trusted build. And then she showed up at the Lindell Symposium in August um, with those images, um, put those images out in the wild, which is um, really risked. It's actually hurt the integrity of our elections by doing that. Um, and so when that happened, when she when she broke uh, allegedly broke the laws uh, that she did, um, Secretary Griswold here in Colorado started an investigation, um, and that started a chain of events um, that that ultimately led to her being removed as a designated election official there. But when we the Clerks Association was asked to stand with Secretary Griswold at the beginning of this at a press conference. Um, to push back on what happened there to, um, and to talk about what really happened, what's true and what's not. And after that, so I went on behalf of the association. After that, death threats really, you know, started in, in massive, very much similar to what Claire got, threatening myself, my wife, our children. Um, we, we reported it out to the FBI, law enforcement, other clerks who stood up with me at various occasions. There's been some who have um, who have been really aggressive pushing back on this. They're experiencing the same thing. And it just, you know, as, as elections come up, we just had our June primary election. Tina Peters, you know, unbelievably or believably ran for secretary of state. She lost our clerk in Weld County, started getting death threats based on that. So, you know, every time an election comes up or there's something new, some new report or lawsuit comes out, you know, these things start to pick up again. Um, and it's it's disgraceful. It's all based on a lie, but it's, Unbelievably, it's the world we live in right now.
So this puts tremendous amount of stress on those of you who are administering elections, and uh, you certainly deserve the support of uh, many to withstand that. But do all these threats, will they have any effect on the voting experience for the average voter? Claire? You know, I think it remains to be seen. Um, what we are seeing so far is an increase in the number of election observers at our polling places and at early voting, um, which is great. It, I think more people who observe the process, um, the better off we are. But what we are seeing is that uh, in Wisconsin, there's no observer training requirements. And so we see a lot of observers who come in and don't necessarily have the knowledge which can create interruptions in the polling place, whether it's interrupting and not following rules by talking to voters, by um, harassing election workers on things that are inappropriate. Um, so one thing that I'm doing in preparation of this is making sure that our, we call them chief inspectors, they're the person who's in charge of the polling place in Wisconsin, that they are well-trained on um, election observer rules, any type of challenges to voters, and then making sure that they're maintaining control of the polling place. But overall, I would say my, my estimate would be that 99% of voters in Wisconsin wouldn't feel the effects of any of these threats and challenges. Matt, same question. Threats and challenges have impact on voters? Um, you know, I, I, I agree with Claire. It's yet to be determined. Our hope is that it's not, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on behind the scenes in terms of hardening our physical security. You know, after 2016, the focus was on cybersecurity and you see CISA and other federal agencies jump in. Um, you know, the federal government designated elections as, as critical infrastructure to, prepare, uh, to help protect us. And the thought at that time, was on on cyber issues, and now after 2020, that's expanded to physical um, um, physical security, both in terms of people and facilities. So, you know, there's a lot more there's a lot more focus on that access controls, cameras, those types of things. But as far as the voter goes, the voters go. No, um, I would hope not. What I can tell you is there's been a lot more coordination than ever before with law enforcement. But that creates a little bit of friction there because we know that there are populations um, that feel more uncomfortable if law enforcement is present and visible around voting locations. So we have to be very careful in how we go try to protect voters and facilities while also not um, uh, making it seem like we're trying to suppress the vote for historically uh, for communities of color and others who are historically underrepresented in the voting process. So it's a very fine line that we're trying to walk to make sure that uh, we can offer a safe and accessible voting experience for people. So let's talk a little bit about what both of you have alluded to, which is the sizable percentage of the population that is doubting or denying the validity of, of elections, the 30% of the population according to um, polls. So what assurances do you give to people who come and say, your elections aren't accurate, I know they're rigged? Can you describe uh, some of the safeguards that you have in your systems for assuring people that elections are accurate and reliable? Claire, Yours, certainly because you have a lot of in-person voting, uh, what are some of the safeguards you would point to to reassure people? 
Yeah, so I think the most important thing is that every single machine is tested with test ballots where we are examining how a ballot is cast and then how the machine reads it and then it gets modem to our county server and everything is matching. So if some if there was some type of corruption to the machine, we would know. We would catch it during our testing. Um, and then in Wisconsin, after each election, we do voluntary um, hand recounts or hand audits of um, a certain number of our precincts as well, where we are double checking and making sure, because I think one of the biggest conspiracy theories we hear is that the, the machines are changing the way your vote is cast. Um, and that is just clearly not the case. We haven't seen any indication of that um, at all in the state of Wisconsin. Um, Wisconsin also has one of the most um, decentralized election administration systems. Um, I am administering elections at a city level, whereas most everywhere else it's done at a county level. We have over 1,800 election administrators running elections on election day here in Wisconsin um, and leading up to and after, which means that there would have to be a huge conspiracy that's very far more organized than any government agency I've ever seen um, as far as having some type of, you know, real infiltration that is, uh, I've been called, told that I'm part of a sect. And so if I was part of a sect, it would be really hard to keep that secret. Um, but I think that, you know, we also have a lot of, like you said, in-person voting, where it's the voter putting their ballot into the machine. Um, and then every single absentee ballot is handled by a two-person team out in the open. Uh, like I said, in Wisconsin, we can't do any type of pre-preparation of our absentee ballots. So every single part of the process that affects voting and the tallying of those votes is done out in the open in front of observers, in front of election workers, and in front of voters. And the testing of the machines before the election is open to representatives of both parties as well. And Matt, uh, for mostly mail voting, different type of system, describe some of the safeguards that should give people reassurance about the accuracy of the election results. Sure. So we do, there's a lot of different things that we do um, to validate. And, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts that we hear from election deniers is they just say, oh, election officials trust the systems and they don't have the sophistication to, to know what they're dealing with. Actually, the exact opposite is true. We don't trust the systems, which is why we have put so much robust testing and auditing in place to validate that these systems are functioning properly. So you both have already mentioned the public logic and accuracy testing that happens. There's extensive testing before the election where we test you know, every different ballot style, every different choice that a person can make to make sure that the, the system is interpreting those, those marks, those, those ballots correctly. Post-election audits, especially over the last 10 years, we've really seen those take off across the country. Here in Colorado, we do the risk-limiting audit. There are different forms of post-election audits. But this, this type of audit, the RLA that we do here in Colorado, we take the original voter marked ballot and we compare that to the cast vote record, which is the record from the voting system that interprets how it, um, that, that, that demonstrates how it, it interpreted every single ballot. So we, if we have ballot A here, we can go to that cast vote record and we can compare the two um, to demonstrate that it's counting accurately. And if there's a problem, then we keep, you know, we look at more and more ballots. Um, and obviously if there was a problem um, that would be identified through the RLA, 
Um, and then that would lead to other actions down the line, whether it's a full hand recount um, or possibly even a new election if something nefarious was ever discovered. But I can tell you that through the course of a logic and accuracy test and the course of a risk limiting audit here in Colorado, we've never found anything nefarious with our voting systems. I think the other thing, too, Claire alluded to this. Election officials have a policy of zero trust security, which means we don't let people do things by themselves. It's two people, bipartisan teams doing everything, every step of the process. And the other thing we like to say is, look, as election administrators, it's not Claire or, or myself when I was clerk in Arapahoe or other you know, um, active election administrators. We're not the great and all powerful laws behind a curtain who are determining these things. Elections are actually run by citizen poll workers, citizen election judges. So it's your synagogue members, it's your church members, your P your fellow PTAers, it's your fellow soccer moms or soccer dads, your Elks Lodge members, it's your community that comes together that actually conducts the elections, that checks people in at the polling places, that checks signatures on mail ballots to make sure that it matches, to that tabulate your ballots. So we, you know, it's it's your it's your friends and your neighbors who are doing this work. And so they can they can testify to the amount of security controls that are in place, access controls, cameras, the whole nine yards to be able to demonstrate that the people should have trust in these elections. I think the one final point I would make, Ben, as well is in Colorado, and I think 90 percent over 90 percent of the country now, people vote on a paper ballot. So one of the things that always fascinates me um, about these election deniers, you know, and these folks, you know, Lindell and the people that he has out running and working for him, you know, and the other clown shows running around, these people never, ballots in Colorado, the paper ballots are open records. These people have never come in and put in a, an open records request to get the paper ballot so they could do a hand count themselves. Why? Well, because they know these systems tabulate ballots accurately. And if they if they demonstrate that on their own, then their grift and their narrative goes away. But they could solve this like that if they wanted to just request the paper ballots, but they won't do it. And you would probably not give them the actual ballots that you would image. Well, we would. So we give them the images, too. But the actual paper ballots are, are open for public uh, for public inspection, too. Now, we wouldn't give them those ballots to go away. They'd have to go into a tightly controlled room at a county to be able to look at that. Some count, you know, some counties would probably say we'll hire election judges to do this and you can stand over your shoulders. But the, the, those ballots are available uh, for public viewing, public inspection, and they've never requested it once. And I think that's very telling as to what they what they truly know and what they're trying to get away with. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how you deal with this large percentage of the population that doesn't believe um, what you just went through and safeguards. What programs, what can you do as election administrators to try and do outreach to the 30%, to try and at least uh, talk to those with open minds to show them that the systems do work. Any outreach programs that you either are doing or have heard about that uh, they get at that? Claire? My biggest thing is I encourage them to become a poll worker. Uh, we have seen an increase in partisan affiliated poll workers, but in Wisconsin, you don't have to have an affiliation. But I think that if anyone gets involved, they work at a polling place or they work processing absentee ballots, 
they will start to absorb that there's not really any way for one nefarious actor to interfere with the entire system, that you're always working within that rule of two. There's always two people issuing ballots, two people opening ballots. Um, and so I do, you know, we, we have been very open in our recruitment of poll workers. Um, I, I haven't run any ads encouraging those who are, you know, deniers right now to get involved, but I do know that we've had lots of positive um, interactions with where we process absentee ballots. It's almost entirely partisan now, which was a huge change here in Wisconsin from previous elections. But just this spring, we've seen um, the atmosphere where we're processing absentee ballots really improve because half of the workers are Republican, half of them are Democrats. They're paired up together and they see right there in working with each other that you can't change people's votes. There's no erasers on the table um, and that there's all sorts of checks and balances throughout the room um, to make sure that someone's vote is counted and counted accurately in how they cast their ballot. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing is getting more people involved because if you are one of the people involved in conducting the election, once it's over, it's a lot harder to say it was rigged when you were there participating and protecting it on election day. Do you have the people in the polling place sign a form when they leave attesting to the fact that they saw no fraud or irregularity? We don't, but it is one idea that we are toying with um, for this election. But right now, observers just sign in. They state if they're representing any party, but they're not required to sign any type of um, attestation like that. But I have heard of um, other places doing that and think it could be very insightful. Yeah. Um, and Matt, programs to, to reassure election deniers? Sure. Well, you know, it's it's um, it's it's funny. I don't well, maybe funny is not the right word. After 2020 and the threats that came in, we did see um, election officials start to recoil a little bit and be nervous about uh, opening up. And so one of the things that we've been trying to really tell people is and people have really you know, come back around is now is not the time to kind of go uh, into the fetal position as election officials. We have to open up our arms up even wider so that we can try to um, rebuild voter confidence that was shred after after 2020. So Claire hit the nail on the head. That's the thing we talk about most is, is come be a poll worker, come be an election judge. We have um, most counties now in Colorado do tours of their counting facility and invite people in and, and answer questions. We see clerks going more and more out into the community to give presentations about what really happens in our elections. And I think we're seeing we're seeing good success with that. You know, there's there's that group of people who are driving the NIFT, uh, the narrative and the grift, um, who are in it for lots of political or financial reasons. And then they have they have some true believers, but there's this big opportunity group out there um, who they're disappointed that President Trump lost. They're somewhat sympathetic to that narrative, but when they start to think about it and hear and listen to other people besides those bad actors, they're like, well, wait a sec, there are holes in their stories. And so if we can be out there and be in the public square and talking about what happens and not letting those bad actors fill the vacuum with, with mis and disinfo, I think we're seeing good success with that. More and more people are, are accepting of the truth and what really happens. And that's not to say there aren't things that we can't do to improve our election processes. I don't know an election official who's ever said we're perfect and we're done. There's so much more that we wanna keep doing both for access and integrity. But 
people, voters should have confidence, whether it's Wisconsin or Colorado, Florida, wherever, voters should have confidence and make sure they get out and vote. And we're trying to do everything we can to demonstrate that. You mentioned that no system is perfect, that there are always improvements to be made, just like your car is safe, but yet there's a new model every year with some improvement. So what are the improvements that you would like to see uh, made to election systems and yours in particular? Claire? Oh, gosh. Where do I start? No, more money. Um, you know, a lot of election administration is underfunded, and I, I'm a control freak. And so as much as I wish that I could be present in every single polling place on election day, um, and controlling every single process, I can't. Instead, it's up to me to train our election officials and give them as many tools as possible to go out and they do this two to four times a year and they're interpreting very complex, sometimes counterintuitive laws. Um, and it's up to me to give them the training and kind of the toolkit in order to be successful. Um, so one of my biggest budget constraints is training. Um, in Wisconsin, you're only required to have two hours of training once every two years as an election official. Um, and I do budget more than that, but my, my local budget has re restrictions, um, has restraints, just like lots of other cities that are feeling, you know, the purse strings tighten. And so I think for me, having really to be able to provide top-notch training, if you think about asking to go out and have someone perform pretty complex task two to four times a year that is extremely statute-based. Um, I think that's always the area of weakness within any election administration system is that we can only control so much when you're talking about then sending volunteers essentially out there to do the work. Um, and that's always what keeps me up at night is how can I improve the, just the processes and the procedures? How can I organize things and materials better so that our election officials feel prepared for something that can oftentimes be overwhelming? Um, and then just, I mean, from technology and software for asset management tracking, I could bore listeners all day long <laughs> with the election administration chat. Um, but, you know, one thing that was really empowering in 2020 was that the pandemic forced election officials to pivot quickly, make lots of changes, especially in states where mail-in voting wasn't the norm. Um, and I think it's also enabled my staff to really think big and think, well, if we could make all of these changes in three months' time, what else could we do to improve, even if it seems overwhelming? Uh, what used to be overwhelming pre-2020 no longer overwhelms my staff or even our poll workers, which has been very empowering. Excellent. Matt, what, what improvements do you want to say? Uh, are you funding? I agree 100%, you know, funding and for a lot of different things uh, we want to be able to do. Um, you know, here in Colorado, um, after the 2020 election, we felt it was important that um, our citizens heard from local election administrators about things that we wanted to do, because so often the narrative gets handed down to us by the state or outside interest groups. Um, so, you know, we came up with four things that we wanted to do specifically around election integrity. So one 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 was funding. Um, the a second one was um, making our ballot images and cast vote records available for free after each election. So right now they are available under our open records 
um, under our open records law here in Colorado, but it can be a very expensive process to redact ballots. So let's say you have a precinct, a really small precinct, um, and you may be able to tell if you got those ballot images who it was that cast which ballot. And so we have to protect that ballot anonymity, voter anonymity. And so we have to redact, you know, for certain situations or people sign their ballots you know, there's always kind of sometimes people leave love notes where they curse us out on their ballots, lots of different things. So anything that could identify a voter, we have to redact that. It's a, a very expensive and time consuming process. So we're looking for some um, third party technology now that will help us do that electronically. But we'd like to make that available for free at no cost. So you know, it doesn't sound like my good idea of a good time. But if somebody on a Friday night said, you know, I want to go and hand recount the ballots from my precinct or from my county, they can do that. We have nothing to hide or fear from that transparency. So let's just put it out there and let people do it. We also want to create um, a stronger signature verification audit. So right now in Colorado, counties are required to periodically audit signature verification, but there's no real consistency from county to county. So we're working right now, we've convened a um, a committee of national and state election experts and election state called election activists to come in and, and come up with something consistent that counties can do so that, you know, Ben, if you were coming in here and studying the data from Colorado, the data that you would get from an audit in Boulder County would be the same as what you would get from Arapahoe County. So you could compare apples to apples. And then we also want to work on a voter registration audit. Uh, both in terms of a compliance audit and then looking at the data, especially as Colorado has automatic voter registration now, making sure that data is coming in timely, that we're processing it correctly, and that our voter, just another tool in our toolbox to make sure our voter registration list is as clean and as, as accurate as it can be. So those are just, you know, along with the, um, the funding, those are four things that we want to tackle right away, and we started to work on that. Um, but there's always, you know, things that we can do to be able to help um, yeah, voter education is a big one now. You know, Colorado, we have really high turnout, which we're which we're very proud of. I think Wisconsin does as well. Now, what's the gap? Why are people not turning out? Is it education and understanding what we do? So we're we're focused on those kinds of things as well. So there's there's a lot across the board that we can do to improve our elections for sure. There is indeed. Um, we only have a few minutes left, and I'd like to close with with sort of a, a, almost an existential question. As you look at the um, 2022 uh, elections and then on to 24, uh, what is your biggest fears and what are your biggest hopes for the way things will turn out in the election? Claire? You know, I think my biggest fear is that we will have candidates who lose, who do not concede, who are deniers of this democratic process and who will continue to um, kind of use that as, as their excuse, which will continue to sow doubt and possibly violence or possibly additional threats. Um, and I think that my fear is that we're not, we're not going to regain that 30%. We're not going to, it could grow larger. Um, but my biggest hope is that we will start to see common sense prevail, that we as election administrators are creating even more um, open, transparent processes that we are trying to do the outreach and will have been successful to get um, both parties, at least here locally on board with what's going on. We'll have plenty of observers and that no matter the outcome, because I think it goes without saying, but I feel now I have to say it, I don't really care who wins. Oftentimes 
I am so um, absorbed in the details of administering an election that I have zero stake and have not paid much attention at all in the month leading up to the election. But my greatest hope would be that no matter who wins, who loses, um, that we can all move forward and accept the legitimacy of those results. That if it's very close, we have recount laws in every state where there's automatic recounts triggered if needed, um, but that we really start to recognize the way in which our democracy has been set up and been functioning and can hopefully move forward. Um, but I will say that that is like rainbows and unicorns at this point, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of my worst fears. I don't have a lot of hope for my, my, for my most you know, hopeful dreams. Thank you, Matt. I think I think that's right. I mean, my my hope is that we have a very seamless election. Um, well, we always, you know, there's an election official prayer. You know, we pray for for wide margins and no lines. Um, so, in an ideal world, regardless of winner, as Claire said, uh, we'll have clear winners. Um, and then, from an election administ administrative standpoint, no issues in terms of lines at polling places um, or any delays in counting ballots or anything like that. And, you know, my my fear is that if we do have close races, um, that people will automatically default to the fraud narrative, and you know, then and then here we go again to where you know we're just coming off 2020 election officials you know are tired um you know both physically emotionally mentally you know it's been a tough two years for election administrators dealing with this um but people are continuing we you know we continue to stand in the breach and, and stand up for this process that we believe in um and you know so to have to have people come around again um, with, you know, claims of, of fraud or um, krakens and voting systems, uh, there is there is a concern, okay, of, here we go again. And then the, what's that going to further do to the fabric of the country right now, which seems like right now we're hanging on by a thin thread. Um, and, you know, after 2020, when it was, you know, that fabric was was shredded because of a lie, um, you know, I think that that's that's our big concern is that something like we'll have another close election. You know, people live inside their echo chambers and their vacuums. They seek out confirmation bias as opposed to real news and, and trying to figure out why why people who think differently than they do, why why they're going to vote a certain way. Um, we saw that with 2020 with, you know, look, look how many people showed up to rallies for Trump. And yet President Biden had like six people in a backyard barbecue. Right. Um, and so people don't really stop to think about why these things are, why they happen and what's, you know, what else is going on. Or, God forbid, talk to people who may they may disagree with to figure out why things are. And so they really believe, well, geez, like it's obvious to me why this candidate should have won. So how come how come he lost? How come there's no plausible explanation other than fraud? And so we're, you know, I'm worried about that, you know, leading to more intimidation and threats and violence against election officials um, and the greater question of what it's doing to our country as a whole. I think that's it scares the heck out of me. Well, thank you both very much for articulating your hopes, dreams, fears and the reality of putting on election. Claire Whittall Vogue is the executive director of the Milwaukee Election Commission. Matt Crane is the executive director of the Colorado County Clerks Association. Thanks for joining us on Saint Sinners and Salvageable. I'm Ben Ginsberg, and we'll be back next week with another uh, podcast.
This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.